for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. All right, take your Bibles this morning and open to Titus. We're in chapter 1 of Titus. We're in a series entitled The Church. And in chapter 1, we're looking at leadership. And today will be the final sermon on leadership as we look at what kind of a person leads in the church. And so I want to read for us this morning verses 10 through 16 to begin with, and then we'll continue from there. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. May God bless the reading, hearing, understanding, and obeying of His Word today. Paul left Titus in Crete, as he said, to put into place what remained. To appoint elders in each church. And we saw how appointing elders is the first work of order in each church and he told him to appoint these men and he gives him direction for how to choose them and that's what we've seen in chapter one is the leadership of the church and how it should be appointed and here's basically the flow of what we've looked at we've looked at the fact that character qualifies for eldership We've talked about that qualified character makes one competent for the work. And those that are competent for the work are then enabled to be able to commit to the work. And the reason that is so critical for the church is because of what we will see today. is because elders must be ready to confront false teaching that is in the church. You see, the church must know the character of an elder so that they will trust him when confrontation arises. So that completes the understanding of what Paul is saying to Titus and ultimately what he is saying to us, the church. And what I I want you to walk away with today, what I want you to get today is just simply this, that elders guard the church from those who are unfit for any good work. Elders are charged... To guard the church against those who are unfit for any good work. 
And that's where we're going to move to today. I want to show you four understandings from these verses of Scripture that help us recognize an elder's responsibility to guard the church. This is what Paul is striving towards as he's qualified these men, shown their competency, and prepared them through committing to the work to confront what may and surely will arise in the church The first understanding I want you to have today is simply this, that real threats exist against the church. Look at verse 10. What does he say? For there are, not there might be, there could be, if by some chance it might ever occur. He just simply says what? For there are. It's a reality that we can't dismiss or make light of, but rather he says it's the reality of the church. Real threats exist against the church, and so often we qualify them in ways to make them something less than a threat against the church. And so he moves from qualifications for to the work of, and he shows why the church needs elders. You see, people who actively, unruly, and openly oppose sound doctrine and disrupt the unity of the gospel, Paul says this, they should be silenced. They should be silenced. It's not just that if somebody makes a mistake. It's not just whether somebody misspeaks or not. But he's talking about those people who come in and actively and and aggressively, antagonistically disrupt the unity and the teaching of the church. And he has in mind those people who are teaching false doctrines. They're espousing false doctrines and principles, or they're just simply opposing doctrines that align with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they do this by stirring up discord in others. So it very seldom is someone who actually stands up and preaches and preaches something completely false, you know, where everybody goes, you know, and it's obvious. But rather, it's very subtle stirring of discord among people, dropping of hints of speculation, Promoting agendas that disagree and divide people to isolate them. You see, all doctrine that is taught in the church must soundly align with God's word through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's so important for us to understand today. That elders guard sound doctrine and the faithful gospel to protect the church against what Paul says are real threats. They were real threats in that day, and they continue to be real threats for us today. Look at the three words that he uses to describe this kind of person. First of all, he says they're insubordinate. Now, that's just a word that basically means they're rebellious. They're disposed to or they're uh, engaged in defiance of established authority. This is more common than we probably want to... um, shall we say, acknowledge today. But this is a person that is so confident in and disposed to self that they will not submit to authority. Because a man who's being ruled by rebellion in his heart will always avoid submitting to authority, but never acknowledge the responsibility for it in himself. And so their actions then disrupt the church's fellowship. You see, only a man who willingly submits to God-ordained authority, can rightly hold God's authority. 
And that's so critical for us to understand today. The second word that he uses to describe this person is that they're empty talkers. It's basically senselessness in their talking. That's literally what the word means. A senseless person who talks long on what they can and would do, but with no consideration for what God has said or for what it's doing to God's people. They talk in a senseless understanding of reality that contrasts with and is skeptical towards the things of godliness in people's lives. And so they work against this. And and you might say this person, in terms of godliness, has a lot to say but never says anything. Maybe you've met a person like that. The third descriptor that he gives for this type of person is they're deceivers. They're deceivers. They mislead people to believe something that just simply isn't true. And by true, we mean this. Not that it might not be a reality in the world, but rather it doesn't align with the teachings that are consistent with God's word. They operate all along this spectrum of deception too. And this is what is so uh, difficult. On one end of the spectrum of deception is that overt wrong teaching that is counter to God's word. And usually the way that it operates on that end is just like the serpent did in the garden. Takes God's word. So it begins with God's word and it just twists it one degree to the left or right, but it's off. It just perverts it. It twists it. And their teaching is counter to God's word, but is ever so close to God's word. Adds to it, takes away from it. Uses it in a way that it was not intended to be used. That's one end of the spectrum of of this uh, uh, deceiver. But on the other end of the spectrum is much more subtle. It's much more, um, uh, shall we say, passive and indirect. And so it doesn't necessarily purport anything directly, but rather it just drops seeds of doubt into everything. Seeds of speculation about, really, did God say that? Oh, come on. That couldn't be true. I mean, and they look to the world and they provide some illustration or example that counters that that is so obvious it seems to make that teaching asinine. And what happens is a deceiver causes chaos in people that fractures their trust in God. It doesn't uh, uh, separate it all at once, but it just begins to fracture it from the realities of life where they seem to contradict the realities and the truths of God's word. And it begins to take a person's trust and to shift it in those fractures from trusting in Jesus and in God to trusting in the person who's purporting the deception. Now, they don't walk up to you and go, hey, I'm about to deceive you, right? Rather, they're most winsome. They're most adept at what they've learned. They've honed their craft, so to speak, and they know how to win people so that they can woo them to their point or their agenda. You see, the problem or challenge really arises in the church in recognizing these people and their teachings because they've mastered the art of disguising their deception. And here's what Paul tells Timothy. False teachers are compelling because they believe their own deception. 
they're, they're compelling. If you look in 1 Timothy chapter 4 or 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says the reason that they deceive others is because they're deceived themselves. They're passionate about this stuff. I mean, they, they are aggressive about it, and not necessarily in an offensive manner, but they're so persuasive in what they're saying, it's almost as if it couldn't be true. Or excuse me, couldn't be not true. And so their deception often begins as good things, but they take those good things and they make them into what? God. They take those good things and they make them into God. Paul says the main group in the church of Crete and the main church or the main group that was causing this kind of deception, these empty talkers, these rebellious parties were the circumcision party. And the circumcision party in that day and time was basically a remnant of either Jews or those who had begun to adhere to the Jewish sect that said people cannot become followers of Jesus unless they're circumcised. In other words, salvation was dependent upon outward actions and outward conforming before it had anything to do with inward transformation. Today it's far less likely that a false teacher will actually step into the church. But false teaching seeps in through immediate access like podcasts, internet, social media. How many of you just read the headlines of the news today? If you were just honest, you don't have to raise your hands. I know it's the vast majority. You say, but I mostly just read the headlines. You know, they know that, right? I saw a statistic this last week, and I I am inclined to agree with it and believe it's true, that like 83% of all headlines that come across Twitter are accurate to the content of the article. 87% of all headlines on Facebook have little to nothing to do with the content of the article. Just to give you some insight on how good headlines really are. People know. They know where your inclinations are. They know where my inclinations are. And they feed off of your weaknesses. And they feed off those places where they can most likely weave their teachings into you to deceive you. We have no shortage, though, of gospel perversions in our day and time. Let me give you three of those that are really generalities, but they're a good way for you to frame your thinking against the greatest threats that exist against the church today. The one is the first one we've already talked about. It's the gospel plush. Plus, excuse me. And their message celebrates truth. Truth is the corpus of their message, but it always adds some requirement or measure of self-sufficiency in order to be a real Christian or to really be saved. And what it does is it begins to place additional burdens on people. So they say yes to the gospel and... It's never just the gospel, it's the gospel and, hence the the plus part of the label that I've given it. You see, the gospel plus says that Jesus is not enough, and it adds a requirement to the gospel in order to manipulate and to coerce people into their own agenda. This runs rampant in our circles today, in a highly churched culture like our own, it is easy to get into, for all good reasons, 
godly motives that started that way anyway to say to a church or a group of people because this is what religion does to us yes to the gospel and to this and that's a real threat in the church today the second group that i would point out to us today is what i would call the opposite the gospel minus and the gospel minus message preaches an equally deceiving and damaging message but it's Claim instead of truth is love. It's all about love. Yes, the gospel, but is its mantra. And it always then begins to seek to propose love in seclusion or exclusion of truth from God's word. Might I just point out that the love wins group in our day and time today is a perfect representation of this. And they fractured and deceived countless Christians by propagating an ethic, a code of conduct that is counter to biblical teaching. They want to talk about God's love and God's grace. But they want it to be completely something other than God's truth. And listen to me, friends. You get God's love without His truth. Whatever you've gotten is a little g. The gospel minus says that Jesus' commands don't matter. Yet it demands that love, that one be loved and, and tolerance be offered when they don't offer any for God and his own truth. The gospel minus mantra says yes, but. Because they want to pull something away from the word of God. The third group is the gospel for group. And this may be the most prevalent today. Missionaries on the field uh, will tell you that this is running rampant in third world countries. Because the gospel for message promises that the gospel is not in and of itself the good news. But it is a means to produce something in your life that fundamentally the Bible may promise. But never necessarily in the way that the gospel for good news or message promises. You see, it, it almost always appeals to fleshly desire. Riches, success, fame, power, or even happiness ab absent of hurt. Countless people are, are subjecting that today the American gospel of prosperity has so influenced the whole continent of Africa that it's difficult to find a pure gospel preached there today. To the extent that it has been widely purported that when mission teams come in, missionaries come in and they begin to work among the locals to preach the gospel, the locals have made plans upon their arrival planning someone to get saved supposedly or get healed supposedly so that they can get and, and, and somehow engage this team and grab their resources. And because they know if, if, if those people see a little bit of favor propagated among that, uh, uh, that tribe or that community, then maybe they'll continue to bring their money and their resources and the stuff that they can provide. And the prosperity gospel has run rampant, not only in Africa, but I can tell you I've seen it myself in Guatemala. It's always the gospel for. Get the gospel so you can get what it brings with it. 
And what it gives is of greater hope than what it is. And the gospel four makes Jesus a sugar daddy by promising so much and claiming God as the provider. But in the end, it only seems to pad the pocket of the person making the promise. The mantra of the gospel four is this, yes, so that. So you have the gospel plus, yes, and. You have the gospel minus, yes, but. You have the gospel four, yes, so that. These are three broad categories of false teachings, false gospels that are ravaging Christians and the church in our day and time. And listen, friends, anyone can become a false teacher. The hurt, the pain, or the offense of life can turn a person to begin to believe and to act in this way. And in the midst of their hurt or their offense, they embrace a teaching that appeals to their hurt, that coddles their uh, uh, offense, and, and they begin to assign a value to all else that the teacher says. And so because it appeals to a, and a tender affection of their heart, they begin to be lured away. And then it sets them at odds with those around them, and they choose the teaching over others who God has put in their life to speak truth into them. Be careful of your friends who always have a word that you want to hear. Especially if their relationship with God and the strength of it is at all suspect in your heart and in your mind. If they value that friendship with you over your relationship with God or their relationship with God, they will use you as God as a false God. And that relationship, if it ever comes about, will be crushed. And if it's not ever discovered, will be subtly damaging and deceiving you, ultimately destroying you and pulling you away from God. You see, a single occurrence doesn't necessarily justify labeling a person in this way. And the last thing we need to be doing is going about carrying a, a label ready to stick on people. But a continual disposition of attitude, of heart action, or a trajectory of actions does warrant us to be wise and discerning and to identify no matter how subtle it might be. And gospel perversions threaten the church through truth deception, through gospel confusion, and through unity disruption that damages people. Many, many Many strive to perfect the gospel to fit their own agenda. But what Paul is saying is that you install and appoint elders to serve the gospel in order to lead people to confess their faith in Jesus. And so the first understanding uh, for our, 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 our time today is that real threats exist against the church. The second understanding I want you to see today is this. That elders are charged to address threats against the church. Look at verses 11 and 12 that he immediately follows with. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Way to build friends and influence people, right Paul? That's what it seems like at first, but hold on, because I want you to see what that phrase really represents. The second understanding is that elders are charged to address threats against the church. 
He tells Titus that the severity of the issue determines the intensity and the extent of the response that he must give to it. You see, elders act to silence gospel perversions and false teachings in the church that divide congregations and damage people. Every situation doesn't warrant the same direct or intense approach. But false teachings that upset, that confuse, that damage, or that mislead people must be addressed in order to silence them. False teachings and false teachers are severe issues for the church and neither holds any place in the church. And Paul's direction to the church is they must be silenced. They must be silenced. And then he cites this Cretan prophet. This is actually a phrase that, that, that the Cretans championed in their culture. It's cited by a number of different prophets and poets that were Cretans themselves. But this is the testimony of their own culture. That Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And hear me, friends. Most of us would be offended by that. They celebrated that. There was such an unrighteousness that ruled their heart and their thinking. This was a way to celebrate their culture. And it had become so close and so, so deep to them that they thought it was a good thing. And what Paul does is he warns Titus to guard the church that's in that culture from the most popular idols of the culture. Those that were easiest to worship with least conviction of conscience. Friends, the hardest deceptions to discern are those that are buried the deepest within us. We're most vulnerable to the lies that most saturate our culture. That's what Paul is getting at. One week, or one uh, Thanksgiving, while Kristen and I were in seminary, we were driving home, and because some friends of ours lived so far away, they weren't able to go to their home, so we invited them to come home with us to my parents' home. And we're driving across South Arkansas, and if you've ever been there, it is the land of monstrous pine trees. And the trees often grow within 10, 15 feet of the side of the roads. And they can be 30, 40, 50 feet tall, monstrous pine trees going straight up and creating really, literally a wall. And so if you can imagine, they're riding with us. We're doing 90 miles an hour down a highway with all of these trees flying by. Maybe you didn't catch that. Kristen's driving. <clears throat> and literally, the wife is getting ill. Ill. Because the trees passing her are something she's completely unaccustomed to. And they're making her sick. It's not the curvy, bad driving. I promise you, these roads are straight and flat. And the driving was exceptional. And there's another factor in South Arkansas driving that you must uh, come to terms with. That when those trees get to a certain size, they harvest them. And they cut them down, strip them, and put them on log trucks. Log trucks are to truckers what crop dusters are to pilots. They're nuts. I, I mean, they're crazy. 
you know, and these trucks really aren't fit to hold the logs. So the logs are kind of, they look like they're doing this, you know. They're driving 90 miles an hour, barreling straight at you on a two-lane road without, without shoulders. So, you know, there you just speed up to get by them quicker so you don't have as long of a threat. And it, it made her sick. Why? She just wasn't accustomed to this. We literally had to stop and let her get some fresh air, you might say. You see, it's those things that are so near to us, so familiar to us, that become so deceiving for us. False idols and teachings that are conditioned by cultural saturation hold the strongest temptation among the church. They're so prevalent, we accept them as not that bad. They're so common that we accommodate them and we cannot, or rather we simply fail to see how they will deceive us or could mislead us. They are so close to us that we grow accustomed to the way they make us feel. We grow comfortable with them and, 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 and we think uh, in such a way that accommodates them so that even in many instances we actually pursue them because... If we're missing them, we feel like something that should be there is absent. And then when everyone else is doing it, it's just easiest to do it, right? Instead of refusing. You see, false teachings almost always begin with something good. And then they make it a God. And that's so critical for us to understand what we're addressing here. The church is most susceptible to being deceived by the values, by the teachings, by the vernacular, by the ideology that most permeates the culture in which it lives. When I started this series, I identified several factors for overall quality of life in southwest Missouri. I talked about sports. I talked about education. I talked about health care and fitness and Religion, I talked about affluence and, and ultimately just all the factors that create an overall high quality of life that people move here because we rank so high in it. Housing, convenience, entertainment, uh, job opportunity. And these are the things that saturate our culture. These are the things that are not explicitly wrong. And in many ways, I'm, I'm actually missing a whole area that could target us, but those are the things that are explicitly bad, explicitly unrighteous or counter to God's word. But what I want to focus on for a few minutes are the parts of our culture that are actually good, but we easily become tempted to make it what? God. They saturate our culture. They're common to us. And they likely hold a very high value for us. But they are most tempting to take the good of and make it a God over our life. Can I give you some ways, just as a means of pastoral application here in the middle of this point, to recognize when the good of culture begins to elevate to the level of false God in your heart and in your life? Let me just blow through a couple of these right quick. But in regards to these things that are so prevalent to us, you begin to have an increasing drive to gain or to increase because others seem to be getting ahead. 
in regards to these things, when you think about them in your normal flow of life and when you're going about your, your day and day in and day out, anxiety and fear grow in you over uh, not what it promises, but whether or not you'll have enough or, or even lose what you do have. Can, can I do without this? I don't see anybody else successfully doing without this. What, what if I don't get everything that it promises me? And so there, there grows an anxiety, a, a fear. You feel the pressure. You might want to buckle your seatbelt on this one. To make an increasing commitment of time, of money, and of energy, or, or even priority so that you can pursue the promise of the next level and what it can provide. And what it begins to do is it creates a conflict of priorities and values for you. Because you can't do it all. You've got to prioritize what you are going to give yourself to. Here's another one. Comparison stirs frustration in you. Maybe it creates your anxiety or just overall your own discontent. And sometimes it even leaves you feeling destitute in your heart because you compare yourself to others. It's interesting when we play this comparison game, is it not? We look at the people that are less than us and instead of being thankful for what we have, we pity them but leave it there so we don't get that close. It's kind of like taking the societal cootie shot, right? Don't want to get too close to that. Afraid it might drain us too. But when we look at those who have more, who do more, who accomplish more, who are in some measured way that we've created ahead of us, what does it cause us to do? Give gratitude for where they are in proportion to the way we gave pity to where they are? Never. Never. What does it cause us to do? Oh my goodness. i got to speed up if I'm going to get there i got to do something different if I'm going to make it there, right? And all of a sudden, comparison never helps us be more thankful nor more content. But it also, it always pushes us off center into these extremes that drives ourself. You, you feel like a failure. Maybe this is a, a way where you see that the good of culture is becoming godlike in its status over you. You feel like a failure when you don't feel like you're making progress or keeping up. But even the pace of the pursuit that you're at is killing you. Let me ask you this. Which is filling your heart and your mind today? It's not maybe one of these might afflict. We're all afflicted by these things. The question is, are you understanding it so you can recognize it and deal with it? That's the question, friends. Let me ask you this. Have you listened to yourself in the midst of all of these symptoms of good moving to God's status in you? Have you listened to the way that you're justifying your continual following of it? Have you listened to the way that you're rationalizing 
And does your rationale, does your justification align with God's word and what you know God's word to say? Does it align with the spirit of God working in you to lead you? Or do you have to push that stuff aside? And listen, it's possible for us to have our quiet time in the morning and listen, the more that those pressures shifting our values and our priorities and our practices, the more they arise, we've got to make it be more quiet time because if the Spirit keeps speaking, He's going to keep disrupting what I want. And so we can read our Bible, we can go to our Bible study, and we can do all of our religious deeds and feel better about ourselves. But what is that justifying? Religion has become your God, not Jesus. Listen, friends, we've got to learn to open the Bible and read it so that it reads us. Not so that we get into the Word, but so the Word gets into us. It's not a matter of who in the room is the false teacher. Let's find them. The issue is, when do I become that person? When do I fall to the deceptions of the things that are good that I love, but I make them God? Because I find more hope and more promise in them than the things that God, by His grace, every good and perfect gift that comes from the Father above has given to me, but I deny contentment and joy and peace in it that I might run after something else. That's what Paul's saying must be silenced in the church. False idols steal your joy by stirring discontentment and promising better, bigger, and more. Social media fuels our false idols. That's the whole reason it exists. Family and children often serve to justify our continual pursuit of them. And we often know it's madness, and we even have glimpses of its negative effect, but we feel that we can't do anything about it. And sometimes we wish someone would just step in and say, Stop! Just stop! It's madness. We want them. And what Paul is saying is that's what elders do. They guard the church against false teaching, and against the idols in order to model a gospel culture among the church where people find refuge from comfortable cultural idols. It's not always just about arguments. It's mostly, usually, not about arguments. But it's about confronting the things that are so close to us we're most willing to give ourselves to them. The influence of false teachers and teachings must not be allowed to remain among the church. And so this third understanding shows how gospel perversions and false teachings must be addressed. And here's the third understanding I need you to see today is that rebuke confronts people in false teaching to turn them to sound doctrine. That rebuke confronts people in false teaching to turn them to sound doctrine. You see, addressing false teaching always includes addressing a person. It's not just theory, friends. It's practice of life. 
And Paul affirms the influence of the Cretan cultural identity and its influence on the church. And then he directs Titus to address its idolatrous influence on the church by rebuking the false teachers, by rebuking the false teaching in order to turn them to sound doctrine. You see, friends, rebuke is the biblical model for addressing false teaching and false teachers. Shame and condemnation often come and, and, and often form the initial reaction to rebuke. Because it always holds this uh, sense of shock, shall we say. And, and many so strongly reaction to the initial pain or the initial hurt or the embarrassment that, that they'll shut down or close off and won't listen to anything further. Instead, they, they point, blank at the, uh, point blame at the rebuker or they assume a posture of passive false humility. And, and let me tell you what both of those responses do. Both of them serve as self-protection measures that validate the necessity of the rebuke. Now listen to me. What you're tempted to feel right now is me justifying why somebody ought to come to you and rebuke you. And I'm telling you, I'm running at this from the other side. I'm talking about rebuke, not to prepare you for the meeting of it from someone, but to prepare you internally to pursue it and desire it as God intended for you to. What I want to cultivate today is not identifying the few people that can step into your life and rebuke you, but rather to cultivate in each and every one of us a humility that actually desires it and sees it for what God intended it as a help to us. In the church. When we react and we reject rebuke, we miss God's intention to bring conviction. You know what rebuke is? Rebuke is the vocalization of the spirit-directed correction from within us. But the problem is that it comes through an imperfect human being. Therefore, we feel justified when we dismiss it or reject it. Friends, rebuke is a biblical model for discipleship at all levels in the church, not just for the elders. It's a biblical model for discipleship at all levels in the church. It confronts false teaching and sinful actions so that it can turn a person to repentance. And the purpose of a rebuke is to begin a process of turning. It provides a stop point to identify false teaching, to confront a wrong action, to confront a wrong attitude, and then to direct towards a sound doctrine that produces a right attitude and a right action. Everyone needs rebuke at times by the very design of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how one responds when rebuked will reveal their character, their inclination, and their desire for godliness in their life. There's no one right way to issue a rebuke, but every rebuke should be done in direct proportion to the false teaching so that it will help the person turn from it. So it's not just in proportion to the false teaching. Not every person susceptible to the same false teaching should re be rebuked in the same way. It always has an eye towards the individual that it's being delivered to, so that in the delivery you will be more winsome and persuading to get them to turn than just offensive in the blow that you delivered. Rebuke is a blow. It's a blow to our ego. It's a blow to our pride. It's a blow to our self-centeredness. But don't we need to be blown away in those areas? Yes. Yes. 
Rebuke should be modeled in all church relationships. Let me argue for this from just a moment. I'll go back to the Old Testament very quickly. The Old Testament wisdom literature says that rebuke is good for us and that we must practice it. Ecclesiastes 7.5 says, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Stop listening to your friends who are singing over you no matter what it is. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse the kisses of an enemy. Jesus commanded his disciples in Luke 17, 3, If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. What is he saying? We need rebuke. We need rebuke. Friend, assess your heart for a moment. How would you respond? Is there anything in your heart right now that says, you know, theoretically, I I agree with that, but practically, I'm not going to have anything to do with that. (laughs) I think there's a temptation in all of us that would say that. And even before it becomes a necessity, we have to prepare our hearts to receive it and to desire it. Rebuke is not about the blow that you receive. It's about the willingness and the openness with which you relate to others that you can trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and because of the gospel to open your life up in such a way that grants them the freedom to speak into it like that. And as long as you're serving self, you will never do that. But serving Jesus makes you no more vulnerable to hurt, injury, pain, or otherwise if a loving brother or sister does that to you. That doesn't mean the whole church should have the same openness, but there ought to be somebodies that do. And the only way that will come will not be by the boldness of the rebuker, but by the openness of the rebuked. Are you living your life in such a way that you are pursuing people and inviting them in to help be a stop point for you to cease your sinful actions, attitudes, and bents in your life. You see, we talk about elders laboring in rebuke. That's what we're getting at. Rebuke shouldn't shock us. An absence of rebuke should terrify us. And rebuke is most painful when its sharpness pricks our bulging pride. And listen, an accurate rebuke that is wrongly applied, is still a faithful one. Doesn't mean that there might not need to be some repentance and restoration between the rebuker and the rebukee. But because of the relationship, and because of the individuals involved in that relationship, have a higher value and commitment and trust in Jesus through the gospel, that's not a problem. That's not a problem. And the pain that that conversation brings is less incomparably less than the peace and the joy and the love that the restoration bestows upon the people in it 
I know that takes a lot of faith. Here's the principle. The more directly a false teaching attacks sound doctrine, the more sharply the rebuke must be applied to it. And so the Bible says that rebuke is the distinctive work of elders in the church. It confronts people in wrong actions and attitudes to turn them to repentance. Listen, friends, if you don't know a character's elder, excuse me, (laughs) if you don't know an elder's character, you surely aren't going to trust them when they go about and try to do the work that God's charged them to do. You must know. You're sure not going to invite it. The fourth understanding. People who remain hard to rebuke are unfit for any good work. This is not a pronouncement of condemnation. This is a pronouncement of reality. He uses a general principle to show how a false teaching corrupts a whole person. That's what he says. He says... To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. A little bit of leaven does what? To the whole pile of dough. It influences it all. And that's the principle that Paul is applying here. False teaching corrupts the whole person, specifically on core doctrines. Makes them unfit for any good work because it corrupts the whole person. So false teachings create wrong believing that leads to sinful living. And often all of that in the name of God. Let me give you this pattern of deception and I'll I'll close with this. Here's how this false teaching so often happens. It infects the thinking and begins to shift priorities through which new affections grow, forming new habits from those practices and ultimately realigning values. And the person who remains in a rebellious posture and hardened in false teaching become unfit for any good work. And so what Paul is saying in this is that if a person will only remain and not humble themselves and submit, they make themselves unfit for the work of God because it's only a matter of time before even those areas of their life and heart that seem to be shrouded, unseen, will also reveal themselves in unrighteousness. And what the gospel does is it turns us To center all of our thoughts and our affections to increasingly exalt Jesus. Not only in a person, but among a people. And so this is the work of elders. This is the work that is being created among the culture of the church. That the elders guard the church from those who are unfit for any good work. And and let me just say this. As the worship team returns, I'll go ahead and have them come back. But I want to say this. It's not just about what the elders do, but it's about what the church celebrates and what the church engages in as well. The elders are charged to lead in this, but the whole church is involved in it, engaged in it. And so the question comes back to us today, simply this. Is your heart receptive? Humbled 
yea, even pursuing godly rebuke in your life. Because if you're not pursuing it personally, you will never receive it when it comes to you pastorally. You see, the life of the church is just that, the life of the church. And the way we live is modeled in Jesus Christ for His honor and glory through His ways and His means. Let me pray for us. I know a sermon like this is very difficult. It's hard. And so I want to pray for you. Not that you would just get it all figured out and be good with it all before you walk out of here. I hope, I, I would hope that is the case. But I'm a little more realistic in understanding that most of us, if not all of us, fight that. So can I just encourage you today to think about that one step that God would lead you to take? Maybe it's recognizing where you're giving yourself to a very common good that you're making into God. Maybe it's remaining a little more removed so you don't have to get into a real gospel flow among people. You stay at a safe distance. And you go, well, I've never been rebuked. See, to say, I've never been rebuked, is to say, I've never sinned. Come on. So what might be a way, maybe God would put a person on your heart or your mind today, and say, you know they're a godly person, you know they're one that you can trust. Maybe you should just go confess your hardness to the work of the gospel and Not asking them for one, but offering them one of your own. And just asking them to pray for you. Maybe today God would send you to a person. Say, you know, I think God is aligning our hearts and doing a work among us. It very likely might be someone in your community group. Can I just say that the Spirit has led me today to open my life. That if you see sin in me, if you see a sinful bent or attitude, I'm asking you to help me. Where is the Spirit of God speaking to you today? God, help us. We are hard-hearted people and well-justified in our hardness. We need the help of the Spirit. If we don't know you, we we won't trust you. And if we don't trust you, we're not going to humble ourselves to you. God, would you help us today? Friends, as the worship team begins to lead us in response, I'm just going to invite you, if you want to come to the altar and pray, it's open. If you want an elder to pray with you, we'd, we'd be honored and privileged to minister to you in that way. But would you take some time to respond to the Spirit of God as He speaks to you and as He leads you? time.